uh, wonderful to be here, as always. And uh, I, I was telling this story. I was telling the story of our church in a sermon a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I got to the planting of this church, and I said that it just fell in our laps. And, and I really feel like that. Like, we didn't, we didn't do much. It fell in our laps, and we got to have the Dernbergers as part of our church for a time, and then got to be part of the planting of this church. And it is, it is such a joy and such an honor to be um, partners in the gospel together. And when wonderful things like this just fall in your lap, because God is so kind. I, I, um, I taught the new member class this morning on our, our unity as a family of churches. So we, we talked about our, our, our cooperation in caring for one another across churches and our, uh, the, the doctrinal integrity that's safeguarded by being part of a wider body of churches and the, the accountability we have in crisis and, and how that's all laid out for us in our Book of Church Order. But we also talked about our, our cooperation in, in mission and just being reminded um, by Greg that, that uh, Scott is going to Dubai to train uh, pastors who very well could be martyrs because some of their colleagues have been martyred, is just, it's remarkable. And that, that grew up in this region. That, that vision to go and equip those pastors came out of the Kansas City Church, and the rest of the churches got excited. And we, we do that together, and we set aside funds for that as a region. So your giving to this church um, means funds are going to that mission, which means you're participating in that. And we're going to talk more about that when we get into Philippians, but I just, I just want to thank you and, and just hope you, you recognize that. I mean, you're, you're participating um, very directly through, through Greg in what's going on in Bozeman, Montana. We're about to adopt a church. Um, Greg is on our church planting committee. He's also a trained church plant council, uh, um, coach, and he has worked with Joel, who you've all met. I know he's been here recently to preach. Um, he's worked with him to help him in that church plant that we're, we're going to adopt and take into this family. And, uh, and Ryan pointed out, um, Sean, who's planting in Des Moines, going to be here in a couple weeks. We voted at the beginning of this month at a, a regional assembly of elders meeting to release funds for that church plant in Des Moines. Some of those funds came from you <laughs> and came from all the other churches in the region who give to Sovereign Grace. Some of that giving goes to support Sovereign Grace National International, and then the rest comes to the region. So we have those funds to plant a church in Des Moines because of our partnership with you guys. So thank you for being our partners. Thank you for giving faithfully to this church. And um, we're not done talking about giving because I have the incredible honor to wrap up your trek through this wonderful letter. So if you want to um, open your Bibles with me to the book of Philippians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 14 through 23. So the last 10 verses. And I'm, I'm eager to worship over the word with you this morning. Paul is continuing in these verses what he began back in verse 10. 
Here at the end of the letter to this church that was especially dear to him, he's shifted his focus now to writing an extended thank you note as his conclusion to the letter. He's acknowledging the financial gift um, that the Philippian church sent him via the representative Epaphroditus to meet Paul's personal needs and to support his gospel ministry. And, and after clarifying in, in verses 10 through 13, the sermon last week that, that Ryan preached, that he made clear he wasn't dependent on their gift because he had discovered the secret to contentment in Christ who strengthens him to face any and every circumstance. After that, he writes this. Chapter 4, verses 14 through 23. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in, of His riches in glory in Christ. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Well, Father, I know um, that uh, lots of grace has flowed to this church from this river of truth called the book of Philippians, and thank you for that. And, and we just come now together this morning and say, drench us again. Drench us in, in more grace. We, we come to your throne of grace, which is a, a fountain of grace, and we come in the name of of our Savior Jesus Christ, who, who bled and died and rose again to give us access to the fountain. And we ask that you would empower now um, by your Spirit this living and active Word so that it has its intended effect on us. Convict us where necessary. Help us where necessary, grow us, encourage us, strengthen us, teach us, fill us, change us. Make us more like our brother, our friend, our Lord, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, let me give you the view of the text from, from way up, so big picture before we climb down into the verses, which we'll do. Paul, like I said, is celebrating his gospel partnership with the Philippians. And he describes their gift, the financial gift, as evidence that they are indeed his partners in the gospel. On mission with Paul 
to make the name of Jesus known and to spread his fame and glory all over the world. It's, it's what he celebrated back at the very beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. So after his salutation, after his greeting, this is the first thing he says to the church. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership is rooted in the word koinonia. And we all know that Greek word, don't we? Because we use it in English. It means fellowship. Means partnership. It means that there was an active relationship between Paul and the folks in this church. They're 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 in the gospel mission. They're involved in that. The, the mission of of uh, telling the good news of Jesus' perfect life and his atoning death and his triumphant resurrection for sinners like us. They're in it. Tell that good news to everyone. They're in it together. That's that's what his letter is is celebrating. It's what he begins celebrating, and now here it's what he ends celebrating. And what we learn from here is that part of the gospel partnership, an important part, an essential part, is the financial support of gospel ministry. In fact, there is an inseparable link between gospel partnership and financial support of gospel ministry. In fact, there's no real partnership without it. There's no participation. There's no fellowship in gospel ministry without it. And Paul gives us some characteristics of, of the partnership that's expressed in support for gospel ministry. And I'm going to give those three characteristics of partnership to us. They're just going to serve as headings as we make our way through these verses. So first, it is a generous partnership. That's verses 14 through 16. Second, it's a worshipful partnership. Verses 17 and 18. Third, it's a beneficial partnership, verses 19 and 20. A generous, worshipful, and beneficial partnership. So first, gospel partnership is meant by God to be a generous partnership. Look at verses 14 through 16 again. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, that word yet at the beginning of verse 14 signals a clarification by the Apostle Paul. As Paul writes this thank you note, he's regularly clarifying what he writes. He's He's sensitive when it comes to finances. And he's not just sensitive, he's wise and he's careful. And here he's letting the Philippians know that his contentment in any and every circumstance, whether facing abundance or facing need, does not mean 
that he didn't appreciate and benefit from their gift. It was kind of them, or it was good of them to send the gift, and as an expression of his sincere gratitude, he's saying that to them. Then he says, end of verse 14, to share my trouble. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, or literally, affliction. That word share again comes from the root word koinonia. So, so this is where I get the point I already stated in the intro. Paul viewed the Philippians' financial gift as evidence of gospel partnership. But by giving a financial gift to Paul, they actually shared or partnered or fellowshiped with him in his afflictions that were a result of his gospel ministry, right? That's why he's in jail. He's writing from jail, not knowing whether or not he's going to be executed. Now, it's difficult to even articulate this, but this is how tightly giving financially to gospel ministry connects us to that gospel ministry. It actually connects us. Does that make sense? To give financially to God's gospel mission is to actively participate in that mission. Which is why I could say, you're giving to this local church, which then gives to our regional mission, is your participation, your giving is your participation in the church plant in Des Moines. Look at the second half of verse 15. It says, no church entered into partnership with me, that, that partnership, there's the koinonia root word again, in giving and receiving except you only. So partnership in the gospel includes giving where one is receiving. It's, it's part of the very definition of gospel partnership for Paul. This is what I mean when I say that there's an inseparable link between giving and gospel partnership. If we are not giving... To gospel work, we have no part in that gospel work. If we're not participating through financial giving, then we're not a partner. To partner in the gospel is to support gospel ministry financially. And in particular, it means that we're giving where we're receiving gospel ministry. And that's what the Philippian church did. And it's what they did well. And it's what they did generously, which we see as Paul gives a brief review of the history of support of his gospel ministry in these verses. Now, before we consider that, let me say this. The Philippian church provides a model of gospel partnership. We're not just spectators here this morning admiring and applauding the generosity of this church, God breathed out this word by His Holy Spirit through His Apostle in order to stir us to imitation. And in fact, imitation has been a theme in this letter of Philippians. You've seen it. Chapter 3, verse 17. Paul wrote, Brothers, join in imitating me And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That was written to the Philippian church. And that's written to Emmaus Road Church. And I believe God would say to us this morning, 
Keep your eyes on the Philippian church. They're an example to you. Imitate them. Imitate them in what? In giving and in receiving. There's an implication in these verses that when someone receives gospel-centered ministry and care, that individual has the responsibility to support that ministry. If we're not, if we're not giving generously to gospel mission, and the main way, not the only way, but the main way we do that is through the local church where we receive regularly. If we don't give to the gospel mission, no partnership, no real participation. So we're to let the Philippians be an example to us. And what an example they are. Paul retraces their history of support here, even though the church is quite aware of it. I mean, they they knew what they had done to support Paul's ministry. And he's doing it both as a, a means of expressing his gratitude and as a means of highlighting that it was a generous partnership. Verse 16 is actually their first support of Paul because Paul went right from planting the church in Philippi down the road to Thessalonica to plant a church there. And the brand new Christians in Philippi supported that church planting project financially. And when Paul left that region of Europe, known at the time as Macedonia, the Philippians were the lone church to pay his way and financially support him. And when we put his letters together with what we see in the timeline of the book of Acts, what they financially supported was the gospel mission in Corinth, which is where Paul went after Macedonia to plant a church. Now, I want us to see just how generous this church was because it it truly is a remarkable example. This church not only supported Paul's gospel mission to preach and plant churches, but they gave generously to meet the physical needs of others as well. There was a season during Paul's ministry when a famine hit Jerusalem and it hit hard so that many of the saints there were suffering. So Paul took up a collection from churches he was associated with for the needy saints in Jerusalem. And when he writes to the Corinthian church, that was planted with the support of the Philippian church, when he writes them to ask for financial support for these suffering saints, he holds up this church as an example in generous giving. And he writes this, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And then verse 7. Here's the imitation theme. See that you excel in this act of grace also. Now, when Paul mentions the churches in Macedonia, he means Philippi, he means Thessalonica, he means Berea, but he mainly means 
Philippi. That was the city in Macedonia, modern-day Greek Greece at the time, which is why when Paul came to Europe for the first time, he planted a church in Philippi. It was a strategic city. Now, notice some things about their generosity. First and foremost, notice that their generosity is evidence of God's grace at work in and through them. Verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given. It's grace that leads to this remarkable generosity. So generosity is a sign of grace at work. It's a sign of Christian maturity. It's a sign of spiritual growth. And this was one mature church. They did not look for an excuse to not be generous. And you know what? They had them. They had excuses. I mean, if anybody had an excuse not to be generous with their finances, it was this church. They were in a severe test of affliction, Paul says. Living in extreme poverty. Yet, instead of saying, well, Paul, we'd love to give to this special offering, but we just can't swing it now. The economy's taking a a downturn. Bank account's low. Retirement fund isn't what it should be. Enemies of the gospel are bearing down on us. We just can't do it. Maybe next time. That's not what they say. You, You can almost hear the Apostle Paul excusing them from this offering given their circumstances because they had to, we saw in verse 4, beg him earnestly to donate a financial gift. And when Paul said, okay, you can give to the needy saints, what did they do? Well, they gave, verse 3, beyond their means, and they did it, verse 2, with an abundance of joy. And Paul doesn't say they were foolish. They shouldn't have done that. Things that were tight just got tighter. Instead, in verse 7, he holds them up as an example. See that you excel in this act of grace, this generosity also. So you see what happens here? Grace comes down, joy rises up, and generosity flows out. And it's beautiful. And when we ask, where does that grace come from? Paul answers for us just a couple verses later, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The grace flows to us through the gospel. It comes from Christ who left his riches in glory in order to become poor and give it all away, even his very life, so that we could be rich and have everything. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He purchased our forgiveness of sins. He made us acceptable before the holy God of the universe. He adopted us into his family, made us sons and daughters, which means we are co-heirs with our brother, Jesus Christ. And to be a co-heir with Christ is to be an heir of everything. 
Jesus is the heir of everything. I mean, talk about rich. That grace, we get that truth, that grace of that truth frees us to give generously. I mean, how can we not? We had nothing. Now we have everything. Of course we want to support the gospel mission. We've received. Of course we want to give. Of course we want to participate in the gospel advancing to the ends of the earth. Of course we want others to come into the riches of God's grace that we enjoy. How could we not? I mean, the gospel partnership is a generous partnership. And gospel partnership is a worshipful partnership. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That word not, the beginning of verse 17 there, represents yet another clarification by Paul. He wants the Philippians to know that his profound gratitude for their financial gift does not mean that his confidence and hope are in the gift. And he wants them to know that his His effulgent expression of gratitude for their past generosity is not a veiled request for more money. In fact, Paul makes it clear that his main concern is not the money at all. His main concern is for the Philippians themselves. He's concerned about their progress in the faith. He's concerned about their growth. He's concerned about their maturity in grace, about their eternal reward. He's concerned about what they get for giving to his gospel ministry. And so he uses the language of commerce to make the point that their investment in gospel ministry is a rich deposit into the banks of heaven that actually accrue interest in eternity. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. God intends for us, like the Philippian church, to invest our money on earth into gospel ministry and partnership so that it will pay dividends in heaven. Paul didn't want the Philippians and he doesn't want us to make bad investments. Neither did Jesus. That's why he gives this investment advice in Matthew 6, 19-21. says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Right? Investing mainly here and now is unwise investing because worldly riches do not last. But... Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So investing in the gospel partnership is an investment in eternity where our treasures last forever and ever. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So 
bad investments reveal bad priorities. Bad investments reveal bad passions. And so those investments are risky. What we do with our money reveals what we treasure. What, what we think is really important. What's really important to us. That's what Jesus says here. So if I saw your budget, if I saw how you spend your money, if I saw your calendar, how you spend your time, I would have a pretty clear picture of your priorities and passions. If you looked at my checkbook, my calendar, you'd have a clear picture of me. And Paul wants us to use our money to advance the gospel and so invest in eternity. Our giving to gospel ministry, to the gospel ministry of this church in some mysterious and marvelous way is laying up treasures in heaven where the treasures accrue interest forever. In other words... The only treasure we'll ever see again is the treasure we give away here to support gospel ministry. All other treasure is lost for eternity. That, that's Paul's motive in talking about money here. It's my motive, preaching a sermon on this topic. It's your pastor's motive when they're on this topic. We're not mainly concerned about the amount of money coming into this church, which, by the way, Greg tells me is extraordinary and is only growing yearly, monthly. So thank you for that. This isn't a corrective sermon. This is a sermon encouraging all of us to excel still more. But what concerns pastors is mainly that your financial support of a Maus Rhodes gospel mission says something about your spiritual health. It reveals whether or not we're living in gospel grace and growing in that grace and maturing in Christ. It reveals whether or not we're living, like Paul's encouraged us to live in this letter, as a citizen of heaven. He wants us to live with an eternal perspective. So that we're not mainly investing our treasures into this world, but we're sending it on ahead to be enjoyed for eternity by supporting gospel mission here and now. So here's the biblical theology of money in a nutshell. Don't be reservoirs. Be conduits. Don't mainly amass and hoard your treasures here in the world, but send it out to where it's most needed for the gospel's sake. And our partnership in gospel ministry as expressed in financial giving is an act of worship. It's what Ryan said right before he took the offering this morning. Gospel partnership is a worshipful partnership. Look at the end of verse 18. Paul stops using the language of commerce and he begins to use the language of worship. And he says this about our financial giving, the gospel ministry. It is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, we need to let this land on us with the force that the Holy Spirit intends. Something as mundane as as money and writing a check 
or giving online to this church, as well as other gospel ministries, is an expression of worship. It's ultimately an offering to God. And it's a fragrant offering to God, like the Old Testament sacrifices were. I mean, think about your favorite smells. That lilac bush in my backyard in full bloom. The coffee brewing in the morning that I didn't fix. Earl Grey tea. If it wasn't weird, I'd walk around with a tin all the time. Earl Grey. Smells better than it tastes. Burning pipe tobacco. Well, when you give your finances to gospel mission in this church mainly, since this is mainly where you receive gospel ministry, that is one of God's favorite fragrances. You give and God says, "Mm, that smells so good. I love that smell because that's the smell of my people growing in grace and storing up treasures in heaven by supporting the advance of my gospel on earth. And so he accepts the sacrifice. He accepts our sacrificial giving and it pleases him. I mean, think about that. Our giving of our resources has an effect on God himself. It brings him pleasure. And isn't that what we want to do with our lives? Bring our Heavenly Father pleasure. That's what I want to do. And and our financial support of gospel ministry is an act of worship that satisfies and pleases God. Wow. Paul uses this language of worship to emphasize that our generous and worshipful giving is valuable in the sight of God. There's nothing mundane about it. It it is of highest worth to him. It pleases him. And if that's not motivation enough to give to this church and beyond, I don't know what is. When you give to this church, when you give to other gospel ministries, you are in a very real sense giving an offering to God himself. What an honor. It's an honor to give an offering to the church. It's a privilege. Our gospel partnership is a worshipful partnership. Last point now. Our gospel partnership is also a beneficial partnership. Verses 19 and 20 again. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, I cheated, and I already talked a little bit about the benefit of the gospel partnership when I talked about the eternal investment. That's, that's a huge benefit, but there's more benefit. There's gloriously more. There's a promise here made to those who participate in gospel partnership generously and worshipfully. Now, note that. Because verse 19 is another verse, one of which there are several in Philippians, like that one on the wall, that often get ripped out of context. 
But we can't do that. It, 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 can't, it can't be. No one can just claim this verse if they're not giving generously and worshipfully to God's work. The promise is for those who give sacrificially and worshipfully for the sake of the gospel. That's whom the benefit is for. And may the Holy Spirit cause us to feel the full force of the benefit. This is a precious and very great promise. Paul says, my God will supply. My God. That's very personal. And, and a very unusual expression for Paul. He uses it sparingly. But he uses it here because he wants us to know that the God who met him in prison... The God who made him content in Christ, even though he was afflicted and going without and facing an uncertain future. The God who met him and made him content in Christ because Christ is all he needs. That very same God will supply every need to all those who give generously and worshipfully for the sake of the gospel. Now, we know, right, this is, this is not a promise of no suffering, I mean, it's coming from God through a man who was in prison for the gospel. It, it is a promise of peace and endurance in suffering. It's not a promise that everything will go well all the time. It certainly didn't for the Apostle Paul. But it's a promise of the grace of contentment no matter what. The promise is that God will meet every need. Not that he'll meet every greed, as one commentator put it. And let, let's just admit, we're, we're not always the best judges of what we actually need. What we need and what we think we need are not always the same. If you're anything like me, very often think you need luxury and ease and leisure and comfort. But that's not what's promised here. In fact, I'm not convinced, I've already alluded to this, that Paul's mainly talking about financial needs here. I think when he talks about everything we need, he's talking about everything vital to living for Christ. That's what he's talking about. That's what this entire letter has been about, living for Christ. So he's talking about everything vital for living for Christ. These two verses, 19 and 20, are not only the, the ending of Paul's thank you note, they are the glorious conclusion and climax to this entire remarkable letter. God will supply everything we need so that... Our love will abound and so that we will approve what's excellent and be pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness. God will supply all we need so that for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. So that our manner of life will be worthy of the gospel and so that we'll stand firm in one spirit and strive together for the sake of the gospel. God will supply all we need so that we will do nothing 
from rivalry and conceit, but instead always count others as more significant than ourselves, looking out for their interests. God will supply all that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and so that we can do all things without grumbling and disputing, shining as lights in the world. He'll give us all that we need so that we can be on the lookout for false teachers in the church, discerning and confronting their error. He'll give us all that we need to count everything as loss in order that we would gain more of Christ. He'll give us all we need to press on and strive forward toward the goal of eternity in Christ's presence, remembering that we are first and foremost citizens of heaven. God will supply us with everything we need to rejoice in Jesus always and not be anxious and to pray and to give thanks and to experience peace. He'll give us everything we need to think on what is most excellent and to be content in any and every circumstance of life. He will supply us with all we need to be generous and worshipful partners in the gospel. God will supply all we need so that we can continue to give and participate in gospel ministry. That's the need. He'll supply everything in this letter. And he gives us what we need according to his riches in glory. If a millionaire was to give me a hundred dollars, he'd be giving out of his riches to me. But God doesn't give out of his riches in glory. He gives according to his riches in a manner that befits his riches or is worthy of his wealth. And God has all wealth so he can be trusted to take care of us physically and spiritually. This is what the Philippians knew that empowered them to give generously out of their extreme poverty. This is what empowered the Apostle Paul to love radically and to take risks for the sake of the gospel. And this promise is only available to us in Christ Jesus. God who sent his beloved son to the cruel cross to bear our sin and punishment away that we might be forgiven and redeemed. Our God who met our greatest need already in Christ will certainly meet every lesser need. Paul says it plainly, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As Paul thinks about this lavish promise and as he dwells on all the truth contained in this magnificent letter, he simply cannot contain himself. All he can do is just let loose and burst forth in worship. Verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. What a fitting ending that is. The only appropriate ending to so great a letter. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we love you and we acknowledge together that you meet every need of ours according to your infinite wealth. And it's a wealth of grace. So all glory be to you forever and ever. May life be Christ to us and death the gaining of more Christ. Make Christ everything to us so that we're willing to give even beyond our means to make him known. 
Make us true partners in the gospel, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.